of Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our special guest to this podcast, Peter DeComo. Mr. DeComo is Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of A-Lung Incorporated. Mr. DeComo, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Well, thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. So perhaps the uh, place to start this discussion is to ask you to briefly introduce A-Lung and what your mission and status of accomplishing some major goals is. So I'll turn the program over to you for that. Sure, and thank you again. I'd be happy to give you an overview. Well, A-Lung, the name itself stands for artificial lung, and so what we're doing is developing a medical device, which is an artificial lung that supports patients in respiratory failure, whether it's acute on chronic respiratory failure or true acute respiratory failure. So the technology itself was developed actually at the McGowan Institute back in the mid to late 90s, and A-Lung was formed in the late 90s, early 2000s, and officially the company began in 2003 when basically we were taking the early research and development work that was done at McGowan and embarked on the true commercial development work that needed to be done to complete the device and make it ready for regulatory approval and commercialization. The device itself actually has gone through two iterations, and I should mention that you know the original inventor and founders of Alung were Dr. Brack Hatler and Dr. Bill Fetterspill, and unfortunately Dr. Hatler died in an accident about two years ago. But Dr. Fetterspill, who runs the medical device laboratory at the McGowan Institute, is still involved with the company as a scientific founder and still contributes to our efforts and actually still does some research and development on potential enhancements to our device. The first device that was created or invented, if you will, by Dr. Hatler and Dr. Fetterspill was an internal catheter where actually the gas exchange took place within the body and the great vessels of the body. And basically with the artificial lung, what we're doing, of course, is removing carbon dioxide and providing supplemental oxygen. And the development of that early catheter proceeded very well, and the company was about to proceed with human trials. But the feedback from the market was, while the holy grail is to have an indwelling type of device where gas exchange takes place in the body versus having to take blood out of the body and treat it, the fact of the matter was that the catheter was quite large at that time, and users in the marketplace, the thought leaders in the marketplace, basically said, you know, great idea, but it's going to take a surgeon to insert this catheter, and that's not always feasible in an emergency situation. So in 2005, the company changed direction and moved forward with the development of an extracorporeal device, and by definition what that means is taking blood from the body and treating it in some manner and then returning it back to the body. And what we have today is a device that looks very similar to a kidney dialysis machine, and in fact we refer sometimes to what we do as respiratory dialysis. So in essence we remove blood from the body, we put it through an artificial lung, very similar to putting it through an artificial kidney during kidney dialysis, we remove carbon dioxide, and we supplement with oxygen if that's indicated, and we return the blood back to the body. The challenges with these devices are many, basically. And one, in terms of mimicking what the native lung does, you have to keep in mind that the native lung has very large surface area and is very efficient at gas exchange in terms of getting carbon dioxide out of the body and putting oxygen into the body. 
prior artificial lungs haven't been very efficient at doing that. Dr. Fetterspill and Dr. Hatler approached this in a very unique manner. And what you see in our device is actually a device that has less surface area than prior artificial lungs, but has much higher efficiency in terms of removing carbon dioxide and supplementing with oxygen. And the device is designed to be not only effective in terms of doing that, but also very simple to use. And the reason we took the approach that we took in terms of, in essence, simulating kidney dialysis is that in the intensive care unit, it is not unusual for the intensivist or the nurse to be able to provide acute kidney dialysis. So our device actually works very similar to kidney dialysis. We use a catheter which is inserted percutaneously. The catheter is of relatively the same size as a standard kidney dialysis catheter. It's inserted into the femoral or the jugular. It's a dual lumen catheter but a single insertion technique and works quite well in this particular procedure. And then the flow rates in terms of taking blood from the body and treating it and putting it back are very similar to the flow rates used in kidney dialysis. So the procedure is very similar, and that's important when you're trying to develop a new device that you want to introduce to the market because drastic changes in the practice of medicine create barriers to entry in in terms of getting the product received and adopted on a widespread basis. The principal investigators that have used this device to date have found it very simple to use and actually very safe. And so the device, for the most part, is complete, and we are now conducting a human pilot trial in Germany. We anticipate that we will run 20 to 25 patients in Germany, and the results from that pilot trial will be used to submit to the European Union for approval by the European Union so that we can attain what's called CE Mark, and that allows us to commercialize the product in Europe. So we're involved in that pilot trial right now. We've run four patients to date in that pilot trial. The outcomes have been very positive in all four patients, so we're quite excited about that. And we're currently still enrolling trial sites in Germany and actually expanding the clinical trial protocol at this point in time so as to accelerate the trial and hopefully lead to commercialization in Europe in the second half of 2011. Well, thank you for that overview and introduction, and it introduces a number of thoughts I'd like to explore with you. And specifically, I'd like to talk a little bit about the need and also what is the current gold standard in terms of meeting clinical needs for respiratory support. And then, of course, you've introduced this concept of taking a piece of scientifically mature technology and working into a commercial product, and I think it would be appropriate to talk about that as well. So let's start with the need. I seem to recall seeing there's on the order of four or 500,000 patients a year that are ventilated for a temporary acute respiratory failure. So what do the hospitals and physicians use now? Well, that's a good question, and let me also just point out, I'm not an engineer and I'm not a physician, but I am a respiratory therapist. Now, I haven't practiced for a lot of years, but I practiced for many years in the intensive care unit setting at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, specifically in the Presbyterian University Hospital Medical ICU. And in my years of experience there, I've treated both patients with chronic pulmonary disease and acute on chronic respiratory exacerbations. I've also treated many 
trauma patients and using trauma in terms of a broad definition can be anything. It could be blunt force trauma due to auto accident, drug overdose and aspiration into the lungs following that, so on and so forth. And typically those acute respiratory failure patients lead to what's called adult respiratory distress syndrome. The recent so-called epidemic of swine flu or H1N1, you saw many patients in the news that were critically ill and treated with something called ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is in a sense an artificial lung as well. But the majority of this population, whether they're acute on chronic exacerbations or whether they're truly acute respiratory failure for whatever reason, if they present with respiratory failure and they need ventilatory or respiratory support, they're typically admitted to intensive care unit. They have what's called an endotracheal tube, in layman's terms, a breathing tube that's inserted through the nose or mouth down into the patient's airway or the trachea. And this tube has an inflatable cuff around it that seals the tube to the walls of the trachea. And then they're placed on a mechanical ventilator. And a mechanical ventilator is a device that, in essence, blows air into a patient's lung under positive pressure. These patients are, for the most part, sedated, although there are some studies that are looking at what's called sedation vacations, where you either lightly sedate the patient or you don't sedate the patient at all. However, sedation is typically preferred because having the tube in your throat with an inflated cuff and receiving positive pressure ventilation is a very harsh procedure, and most patients can't tolerate that while they're awake. And so they're sedated, restrained, and the mechanical ventilator, for the most part, controls their ventilation in one way, shape, or another. In my experience as a respiratory therapist, I worked for many years with patients on mechanical ventilation, and it is the standard of care in respiratory failure today and has been for over the past 30 years. If you're not a clinician, obviously you've heard about the iron lung that was used in the polio epidemic all the way back in the 40s and 50s. That was, in essence, the first mechanical ventilator, although it wasn't a positive pressure ventilator. It was a device used to support patients in respiratory or or ventilatory failure. And then the devices have advanced from there. And mechanical ventilators today have evolved. They're very sophisticated devices. They're electromechanical devices with very sophisticated software. They typically are very small today and very easy to operate. But in summary, mechanical ventilators really haven't changed very much over the last 30 years, and they do the same thing they did 30 years ago, and that is they inflate your lungs under positive pressure. There are various breathing patterns that you can dial in with the ventilator, but in essence, it's positive pressure ventilation where you blow the lung up like a balloon. And there are various side effects, complications, and adverse events that are associated with positive pressure ventilation. You have side effects, adverse events associated with the tube in your throat. That's a foreign body. The inflated cuff against the tracheal wall applies pressure to the tissue. It applies pressure to the blood vessels that feed that tissue. And oftentimes patients experience tracheal damage from that, which is irreparable in the form of necrosis and stenosis and things like that. And so that's not a positive thing. And typically patients that need an endotracheal tube through the nose or mouth for longer than 10 to 14 days have to undergo what's called a tracheotomy where they make a surgical incision into the trachea. 
and they put in what's called a tracheal tube or a tracheostomy. That's to avoid the necessity of having the tube go through the nose and mouth. You also have to understand that when you bypass the nose or mouth by putting a tube either into the nose or mouth or through the tracheal wall, you bypass the natural defense mechanisms of the respiratory system. Your nose and the cilia, the hairs in your nose, uh, the upper airway basically filters bacteria and viruses from getting into your lungs. And when you put a tube down there, you basically create a natural pathway for bacteria and viruses to get down there. Now, we do everything we can to prevent that from happening when it's necessary to have a tube there, but there's a 20 to 30% chance that the patient might get what's called a ventilator-associated pneumonia because we've created that direct pathway and the patient somehow gets infected. There's a high mortality rate associated with ventilator-associated pneumonia, and the cost of caring for patients with ventilator-associated pneumonia is also very high. You also have side effects and adverse events that can occur as a result of the positive pressure that's used to put air into your lungs. For the layperson, it's important to understand that we don't naturally breathe that way. When we spontaneously breathe, we create a negative pressure in our lungs by dropping our diaphragm and expanding our chest cavity, and air naturally flows into the lungs under negative pressure, so there's no positive pressure in the lungs. And then we naturally relax in our thoracic cage and our diaphragm naturally recoil back to their natural position. And by the thoracic cage going back into its natural position, we exhale and air comes out of the lungs. And in that process of moving air into and out of the lungs, we remove CO2 and we take in atmospheric gas during spontaneous ventilation and we provide oxygen to our body, which is very important. Under mechanical ventilation, we do just the opposite of all of that. We blow up the lungs like a balloon, and we put oxygen in there, and then we remove the CO2 under positive pressure. Well, positive pressure over long periods of time can cause what we refer to as barotrauma or trauma to the lungs because of high pressures. And especially when patients have some sort of lung disease like emphysema, or adult respiratory distress syndrome, high pressures are necessary in order to provide enough ventilation, in other words, getting enough volume of air in and out to remove sufficient CO2 and to get enough oxygen into the lungs and across the lung tissue and into the bloodstream to feed our tissues. And so there are techniques out there when you're using a positive pressure mechanical ventilator to increase the efficiency of gas exchange but oftentimes very high pressures are needed in order to do that, and the side effects and adverse events can be pretty profound. So that's the state of the art today, and it's been effective. But, for example, patients with adult respiratory distress syndrome have a 50% mortality rate. And so there's obviously a need for a better way to do it. Patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease like emphysema who have an acute on chronic episode oftentimes end up with a tube in their throat, being sedated and on a ventilator. And because these patients are in such a compromised state, once they're on that ventilator, they become dependent on that ventilator to breathe for them. And when that happens, it takes a significant amount of work to do what we call wean them from the ventilator or get them back off of the ventilator because they become dependent on it. All of that results in increased length of stays in intensive care unit 
It's very expensive to care for patients in the intensive care unit. Whether you have acute on chronic pulmonary or respiratory failure or even acute respiratory failure. So the idea with the A-lung device is in the chronic population to catch them before they need that ventilator, place them on our device, use the artificial lung to supplement and complement their own native lung by reducing their work of breathing, improving their gas exchange efficiency, and by supplementing and complementing what they're naturally doing, avoiding that crash that occurs where they need that tube down their throat need to be sedated and put on a mechanical ventilator. And by using the A-lung device and avoiding all of that, the patient stays awake, alert, continues to spontaneously breathe on their own, can eat and stay strong, can talk to their loved ones, can talk to the clinicians, don't become dependent on the ventilator, and potentially what you have is a significant reduction in the cost of care because they get out of intensive care units sooner You have a better quality of life because they're not sedated and comatose and they don't get dependent on the ventilator. And many times these chronic pulmonary patients that have these acute exacerbations, once they experience a positive pressure mechanical ventilator, oftentimes if they have another crash, will come in and say, I don't want to be intubated. I don't want to be on a mechanical ventilator. I'd rather just die, pass away, if you will. In the acute population, the advantage of the A-lung device is that even if they are on the ventilator, and this is partially true of the chronic population as well, you can use the A-lung device to supplement and complement the ventilator by enhancing CO2 removal and oxygen administration. You can do what's called lung protective ventilation, and instead of using those high peak airway pressures to move air in and out of the lungs with a mechanical ventilator, you can use lower volumes, lower peak airway pressures, and still get efficient gas exchange because you're using the A-lung device, and thereby you can avoid all of the barotrauma associated with high positive pressure mechanical ventilation. There have been a number of NIH studies that have shown that when you use lung protective measures like the A-lung device, you can reduce mortality by over 20%, which would be a big advantage in adult respiratory distress syndrome. I thank you for this overview, and it's clear that this innovation and this product, once it's available, will be a major advance forward in terms of the current standard of care. I'm sure there's degrees of respiratory failure. Is there some estimate as to how much of the lung function this particular device can replace? Yes, currently it will replace about 50% of lung function in terms of CO2 removal and about 30% of lung function relative to oxygen administration. However, going back to Dr. Fetterspill's work, we're currently working on enhancements to the device that look very promising in the laboratory, and it appears that we can improve CO2 removal up to about 75% of lung function, and in oxygen administration, achieve 50 to 60% of what the lung does. Now, remember, in these cases, we want the native lungs to continue to work, especially in the chronic pulmonary population. So we want them to do part of the work of breathing. So the A-lung device is there to supplement and complement, but not to totally replace. And even at 50% of lung function, what we've seen in these first four patients is pretty dramatic in terms of reducing the work of breathing for these patients. 
And in adult respiratory distress syndrome, where oxygenation is the primary problem, we're already working on a larger catheter that will double our ability to administer supplemental oxygen to these patients that have very difficult issues with getting gas transfer of oxygen from the lung across the tissue and into the bloodstream. So this is in sync with what we've seen from other guests who talk about other organ failures and the fact that if you can support an organ on the order of 50%, you can get the organ to regenerate, restore, and regain functionality in many cases. That's exactly right. You know, in, in the chronic population that I referred to earlier, typically the reason a, for example, an emphysematic patient has an acute on chronic exacerbation is because they somehow have acquired a lung infection. And that lung infection further compromises them, and then they get into this downward spiral. Well, by putting them on this artificial lung, you supplement and complement what the native lung is doing. At the same time, the physician is treating the patient medically, typically with antibiotics, to cure that underlying lung infection. And what you'll see is in three to four days, the patient starts to improve with the resolution of that lung infection, and they can start to take over more of their own work of breathing with their native lung, and you can start to wean them off the A-lung device. So you mentioned a moment ago that you were looking at some enhancements to the current technology, which is probably a good segue to talk about the challenges and the effort needed to move something essentially from a scientific laboratory to a commercial-slash-clinical project. So you indicated at the start of this discussion you are now running clinical trials in Germany with the current device. Uh, How long did it take you to get from the concept that was deemed to be mature in a scientific lab to this point? Well, I'll mention before I specifically answer that question that this is probably my sixth medical device development project, at least in the sense that it's become commercially viable. I've been involved with more than that. But typically, when you're thinking about a product development project for a medical device, from the time it transfers from the bench, from Dr. Fetterspill's bench, into a formal commercial development project, you're probably talking a minimum of three years, but more typically four years. The reason for that is that there are many rules and regulations that you have to follow as you prepare a device for commercialization. And you have to remember, before you ever get to commercialization, you've got to go through a regulatory approval process. And that requires that you have an established product development process under a quality system that the FDA feels comfortable with and that you can demonstrate that you have developed this product according to your predetermined specifications and that the testing of this product relative to safety and efficacy has met those specifications. And then you have to demonstrate all of that in an application to the regulatory bodies, whether it be in the United States or Europe. So you submit this very significant application, tons of paperwork, that demonstrate that you've done all of these things. And so when you begin this process, it's typically what's called a stage gate process, and you go through four or five stages of development as you move that product from bench and concept to a commercially viable product. And there are pitfalls along the way that if you're experienced, you can avoid, but if you don't have a well-established product development process and a quality system, 
people that do it for the first time often have difficulty avoiding those pitfalls. And those pitfalls can be very expensive. But even if you're good at it, you still have to go through this progressive stage gate process that says you have to do this before you do that, and you have to test along the way. And even if you're efficient, and even if you avoid the pitfalls, it will take you three or four years to get through that process, and then you've got to go through the regulatory approval process as well. And depending on the sophistication of the device will determine as well how long it may take you to get to that point where you can use it on humans. In, in the A-Lung situation, the current device that we're using on humans the, the commercial product development process on that device began in 2005, and we started human trials in November of 2009, so just over four years with that product. The one other aspect that I'll mention is when you're dealing with an extracorporeal device, meaning, again, taking blood out of the body, treating it and putting it back into the body, that further complicates the product development process because the movement of blood outside of the body where you take it and put it into contact with foreign bodies, meaning tubing and the artificial lung itself, etc., you have to make sure all of that is biocompatible. You have to make sure that you are below allowable limits as it relates to thrombus or clot formation or any impact relative to destruction of the red blood cell. So with an extracorporeal device, not only are you developing an electromechanical device with most likely sophisticated software, now you have the added challenge of developing a device that's safe and effective in terms of the treatment of blood. And I've been involved with devices that are extracorporeal. This is my third device that's extracorporeal. And a number of other devices that aren't extracorporeal. And those devices that are not extracorporeal you can get done in a shorter period of time because you don't have to worry about those blood aspects of the development process. But it's under any circumstances, extracorporeal or non-extracorporeal, development of medical device is a complicated process, it's a lengthy process, and it's a very costly process. By comparison to drug development, it takes less time and is less costly, but a device like the A-lung device, by the time these devices get to market, you have probably raised and spent about $40 million. So an electromechanical medical device on the low end might cost you 5 to $10 million, and on the high end could cost you 100 to $125 million. And that's only for development. Once you begin the commercialization process, you have to understand that there's also the issue of market adoption and the money that's needed to support that commercialization effort, the distribution channels that need to be created until you get to what the business people call cash flow break-even or have a profitable company. So in addition to the time that you and your team have required to get to the stage you are, Dr. Hatler and Dr. Fettersville probably have spent at least eight years refining and developing the technology to the point that it had some commercial potential. That's correct. I mean, if you look at the entire timeline, I think a safe estimate would be that this product, from concept to where it's at now, has been about 13 years. Now, that's a little long, and the reason that it's as long as it is in the case of the A-Lung device is that if you remember, I said earlier it went through two iterations of development. 
had it not gone through two iterations of development and started with the extracorporeal device, it would have been shorter than 13 years. But yes, it's a long time. It takes a lot of dedication, a lot of work, a lot of passion. And the other challenging aspect of medical device development today is that the uh, funding environment is in upheaval. And so raising money to be able to do all of this is extremely challenging on top of the development project itself. Mr. DeComo, do you see a large need or opportunity for this technology to serve patients? You mentioned it earlier, John, that there are 450,000 respiratory exacerbations that occur annually, and that's just in the United States. And not all of those patients will benefit or need an A-Lung device, but the market is quite substantial, and for a company like A-Lung, the market potential can easily be greater than a billion dollars. But the important thing for us, those of us that are in the development process of all of this, is that we're driven by wanting to improve the clinical outcomes and the quality of life outcomes for patients in respiratory failure, and, and this company and this device is well on its way to doing that. But I would also add that none of this would be possible without the capability of an organization like McGowan that conceives of these approaches in terms of artificial organs and does the early research and development that allows these companies to spin out and go out and raise money to continue that development and create commercial, innovative, disruptive products that can improve the quality of care for these patients. You know, and in this particular patient population, there has been really no significant major advance in the treatment of respiratory failure for 30 years. So it's, it's time. It's time that something like this is out there that will do just that and provide for significant improvement. Mr. DeComo, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us by phone today and share this exciting story, both in terms of perhaps a lesson in the effort it takes to move from bench to bedside also the exciting progress that you've made in terms of developing this technology that hopefully will soon be available on a clinical basis. I remind our listeners, if you want some more information on the ALUNG program, their website is www.alung.com. And as we conclude this particular podcast, I'd like to say thanks to the McGowan Institute that sponsors these programs. Remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics to address. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I look forward to joining you again in two weeks with another interesting interview. Thank you to all. 